where you're looking at this text in James, verses 11 through 17, and and you're thinking, finally, James is giving us a checklist. We finally got it. He's moved on from this pesky business that cares about our hearts, and he's giving us a list of things to do, and we can just do those things and be good Christians. Well, I hate to break it to you, but that's not what Christianity is. Christianity isn't a checklist of things to do, and that's not what James is giving us in this text. Now, if ever we come across a checklist in the Bible of things where you need to start doing something, that's good, and we we should do them. But that's not ultimately what James is getting at. Once again, James is concerned about our hearts. So he's going to give us some instructions of things that we should do, but they're less of a checklist And they're more of a compass that ought to orient us towards God so that our whole life is in obedience towards God in that same direction as we walk towards him. So the things that he's going to talk about are not just simple behaviors to change, but they actually reveal a problem in our hearts. That problem is that very often we live our lives as if God does not exist. None of us would say that we're atheists, but we live like an atheist would live. We ignore God's word, and we don't take any concern for God's will. Have you thought about that? Have you thought, very often, we live like atheists? Now, I'm happy to say that's not true for every one of us every single moment of our lives. I I am thrilled to say that I know many of you, and I know that God is working in our hearts to transform us so that we aren't living like atheists every single day. But I also want to suggest that you and I probably commit the sin of practical atheism more than we would like to admit. James points out two ways that we do this. First, we do this by replacing the word of God with our own aims, and agendas, and we ignore the will of God while pursuing our own plans. So number one, James points out that practical atheists replace the word of God. That's what's going on in verses 11 and 12, but it will take us a second to see how that is the case. Verse 11, he says, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer, defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So once again, James is looking at our external action, and and we know that criticism and defamation and judging are bad enough, but he's going to trace it deeper to reveal what problem is in our heart. And ultimately, that problem is that we are replacing God's word and God's law with our own word and law. So let's see how he does this. He starts by pointing out this presenting behavior that takes place in our speech, criticizing, 
judging, defaming. Here he subtly reminds us as he refers to us as brothers and sisters, he reminds us that there's no place in the church for this kind of behavior. Siblings in the family of God should not be criticizing and judging and defaming one another. So he recognizes this outward behavior is bad. So when we speak ill of other people, that's, that's what this defaming is, this criticizing. We're saying things about other people that are to their detriment. So we try to say something negative about somebody else because it will make us look better. This is what he's talking about. Or we look around at other people in the church and we see that they have different preferences and standards than we do. So we judge them or we look down on them. So we might judge someone for being too permissive or we might look down on them for not exercising the freedom that we have in Christ. Whatever the case might be, we often sin with our speech as we relate to other people in the assembly. James is trying to show us this outward behavior is sinful. We shouldn't be doing this. So before we can even look at the heart, we need to ask ourselves, do we behave in this way? Are we unnecessarily critical of one another? Do we judge one another? Because people don't hold our own preferences and standards. Do we speak ill of other people, even if it's not true about them, just so that we can score points and make ourselves look better? These are hard questions to ask because as James already pointed out, every one of us stumbles in many ways. We sin with our speech all the time. So this past week, did you use your speech to put someone else down to raise yourself up? Did you speak negatively about someone else so you could look better? Did you spread a rumor or continue words of gossip that would be harmful to someone's reputation when you know that it's not true or you've never even taken the time to see if what you're saying is true. You're just repeating what you heard. Do you speak negatively about others in the guise of spiritual concern, of a prayer request? Have you heard about this person and what they're dealing with that really makes them look negative? and you look spiritual and positive. I don't think that it would take us long to realize we use our speech that way all the time. It just slips out. We judge fellow believers. We speak words of judgment about their behavior when it doesn't conform to our standards. Now, I want to be clear that there is a right kind of judging that should take place in the church. So think of situations like 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that there's this guy who's sleeping with his stepmother, and the church needs to come together, and they need to render a judgment that this is against God's law, and they need to remove this guy from the assembly. But there's a certain kind of judgment that the church is called towards, where we render verdicts that are in keeping with Christ's commandments. We, we call this church discipline. But I think the way that most of us um, engage in judging speech is not when the church gathers to render Christ's verdict of judgment over unrepented sin. Instead, we render judgments as we evaluate people against our own standards. That's the kind of judgment that James wants to expel from the church. The kind of judgment 
that isn't the church doing what God calls it to do and rendering the verdicts of Christ, but us rendering our verdicts about other people based on our own standards and judgments. This is where James makes a churn to show us what's actually going on in our hearts. He says that if you're defaming or judging a fellow believer, that you're defaming and judging the law, and if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You could replace law with word. So if you remember all the way back in James chapter 1, he said, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Well, now he's saying, be a doer of the word and not a judge of the word. So how does this make sense? I think he's communicating two things. Number one, he's saying that when you are defaming somebody, when you're speaking negatively about someone else, using your, your speech to sin, you're violating the law of God that says to love your neighbor as yourself. So you're essentially judging that law, and you're determining this law is not worth following. I know that God said I need to obey this law, but I'm going to judge whether or not I think the law applies to me, and I'm deciding it doesn't apply. I'm going to sin with my speech. Do you see how we become a judge of the law and we say we don't need it? We do this all the time. Um, I went to a particularly conservative Christian college that had all kinds of rules and rules that I judged unworthy of being followed. I didn't think that we needed them. Uh, one of them was that we, we were not allowed to have facial hair of any kind at this college. Um, and I would always think, well, that's a dumb rule. And I work this overnight shift, so I'm going to show up to class and I'm not going to shave. And I don't care about this rule. Well, I would get these things called demerits, and I'd just reason why I can spend as many demerits as I want. I'm not going to get kicked out over this. But I, I, the way I behaved said this law is not worth following. That's exactly what we do when we sin with our speech and we speak ill of other people. When we gossip, when we spread rumors, when we judge, we say God's command to use my speech to bring life and flourishing is not worth following. Christ's command to love my neighbor that doesn't apply to me. That should just apply to other people. And ultimately, what we do in those instances is we say that we have more authority than the law that God gives us. That's what I was saying when I didn't shave. I was saying, I have more authority over my life than this law does. But when we sin with our speech, we're essentially saying, I have more authority than Christ's commands. We become a judge of the law instead of a doer of the law. It gets worse. When we judge God's law, when we position ourselves in authority over God's word, we are positioning ourselves in authority over God, the giver of the law. That's why he says in verse 12, there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. It's not just that we are stepping above the authority of God's law. We're trying to take God's authority for ourselves. And James reminds us, your heart is prideful. There is only one lawgiver and it's not you. So who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to say that you can render judgments over other people and stand in the place of God. I think in conservative churches in particular, this sin of judging other people is especially prevalent. And I want to say that's true 
with us as well. We can do this just as easily as any other church. We can do this. We can start to say, I think people ought to live in this particular way. And when they don't, we start to judge them according to our law, and we position ourselves as God over them, saying whether or not they should belong or not belong based on whether or not they're living according to our way of living. What we do is what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they wanted to become as God over God. We tried to set ourselves up as God over other people. That happens so easily, doesn't it? We try to say, um, I want to be the king who gives the law and, and tells everyone else what they ought to do. And when they fail to do it, we judge them and we stand as God over them. This can happen in a variety of ways. Uh, Let me start most broadly and then work narrowly. I think sometimes we as conservative Christians can claim that we want to submit to the authority of Scripture. We will say, the Bible is authoritative for my whole life. But what we then go on to do is to take verses out of context to get the Bible to say what we want it to say, And instead of submitting ourselves to God's authority, we leverage God's words for our own agendas. This is sinful. It's replacing God and his word. It's living as a practical atheist in the guise of Christianity. So we might claim submission to the authority of scripture, but we just try to make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. The big, broad way we do this. Within the church, I think we often do this by making things that the Bible doesn't actually talk about explicitly really, really important in our eyes, and we arrive at a particular conclusion, and then when other people don't hold that same conclusion, we render judgment on them. Whether it's because they're more restrictive than us or more permissive than us, we act as the judge of what everybody else should do. This is what we've been talking about in that Bible class on Sunday mornings about doctrine and conscience issues. Because Christians have this tendency to say, well, I know the Bible isn't explicitly clear about this, but I'm going to interpret it and apply it with the same authority as the Bible itself and judge anyone else according to my judgment. In so doing, we subtly replace God and his authority with ourselves and our own authority. But we can also do this in our relationships. Let me talk about one. Parents. It's easy for you to abuse God's word, to exercise authority over your kids, and justify it because now you've pulled God into it. Let me give you a scenario. Your kids are playing around the house. You've gotten home from work, and you just want peace and quiet. You know that God has called you to love your children, which means investing in them, spending time with them, perhaps playing with them when you get home from work. But all you want to do is relax. And so you start scolding your kids for being happy. You start saying, you should respect me and obey me and submit to everything I say, so just be quiet and leave me alone. Do you see how we can take God's word, we can quote verses, while at the same time we're running away from God's calling on our life, to love and to give of ourselves. That, that's just one example. 
We can do this in virtually every relationship in every situation. We can use verses of scripture to actually pursue our own will and agenda and exercise our authority instead of living under the authority of God. It's remarkable how innumerable these situations are. And I think if we ever stop just to think about it, we'll start to see that we replace God's word with our own agenda, with our own word, with our own law. And in so doing, we live as if God does not exist. So practical atheists replace the word of God with their own will, their own word, their own agenda. When we see ourselves doing this, we just need to repent. We need to repent and submit again to the word of God, to allow God's word to be implanted in our hearts, to receive it with humility, and then to do it. That's the solution James has already given us. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Don't establish your own word while replacing God's. But then number two, practical atheists ignore the will of God. So we replace the word of God, but then we often ignore the will of God. We try to live independently of God's providence and provision. He writes, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We replace God's word, but we also ignore his will. He says, come now, pay attention. You who are saying tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll do this or that. We'll travel to this place and we'll do business there and we'll make a profit. All he's doing is giving an illustration of a person who orders their life in pursuit of their own agenda. The problem is not that this person is doing business or seeking to make a profit. It's not their vocation that's a problem. What's problematic is that this person fails to recognize his limitation or God's providence and provision. We could rephrase the illustration. Come now, you who say, I'm going to live here or there and get this or that job and buy this or that house and grow my family inheritance. Come now, you who say, I'm going to get married and work for two years and then have three kids, two boys and a girl, and this will be their names, and this will be the spacing of their age groups. Come now, who say, let's do this or that outreach and grow our church until it reaches such and such a size, and then we'll go start another one and continue our church's legacy. Come now, you who say, Let's plan a Wednesday night gathering and everyone will get sick. We have a penchant for planning our lives without ever thinking about what God's will is. But we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what our life will be. We're like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. 
Here, James lands on the major problem. We think too highly of ourselves and our capacities, and we prioritize too highly our wills and agenda, and we forget how small we are and how dependent we are on God's provision and how constrained we are by God's providence. We start to organize our life according to our own way. We assume that we can order our lives, that we will go where we want to go, that we'll do what we want to do, we'll stay there as long as we want to stay, and the outcome will be whatever we want it to be. That's how we plan our lives, without taking thought of God's providence or his desires. Now, this text is not a warning against planning. We have to read the whole of the Bible, and actually the Bible would call you a fool if you refuse to plan. So maybe you are sitting there thinking, all of these type A people who plan out their lives, they're the sinners. I fly by the seat of my pants, so I'm quite godly. That's not what you should take away from this text. God says that you're a fool if you don't plan, but God also says that you're a fool if you don't recognize that while we make plans, it's ultimately God who will direct our steps. We can make our plans, we can organize our schedules, but ultimately God is in control of everything that happens. We can plan to make money and find rest and comfort, but ultimately we understand that our provision and prosperity is from God alone. So what's the solution? Well, it's very nice that James gives it to us directly here. It says in verse 15, Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And what I don't want you to do is to walk away, including the phrase, if the Lord wills, in every single sentence that you say the rest of your life. In every single plan that you make, you don't need to add tack on this magical formula, if the Lord wills. Now, I think those words are helpful for us, and we should probably be saying them more than we ever say them. So we can learn from the ancient Puritans. They had this saying in Latin, Deo valente, Deo valente, um, if God wills. And, and they would use this so frequently that like when they would sign their letters with their plans in it or something, they'd put the initials DV, or when churches would put out announcements for an activity or something, a gathering, they would have DV on it. Lord willing, we will do this or that. There's probably something to learn from that. But I think, given the way that we can disconnect our hearts from what we're actually doing, we can start to throw out that phrase all the time while still having a heart that's oriented toward ourselves and our plans. James isn't so concerned that we utter these words, but that we organize our life around God and his will, his desire, his provision. Now, if you're wondering, how can you say we don't need to say this with every plan? Read Paul's letters. Sometimes he says, Lord willing, and sometimes he doesn't. So we have great proof text to say James doesn't just want us to say these words. He wants us to adopt this manner of life. It's not supposed to be a thoughtless phrase, but a genuine prayer and acknowledgement that accompanies all of our planning, whether those words are spoken formulaically or not. James wants us to set aside our boasting in ourselves, 
this idea that we ultimately have control of our lives in our calendars, in our bank accounts. He wants us to see that that kind of living, that kind of boasting is arrogant. And all of that kind of boasting is evil because it has nothing to do with God. I wonder how many of us plan our lives like this person, where we fail to offer our plans before the Lord, where we fail to seek his guidance, where we have an inflated view of ourselves and we believe that ultimately we can do whatever we want to do and nothing can get in our way. Perhaps one step toward a solution would be to pray the Lord's Prayer more frequently. I know that sometimes people just recite the Lord's Prayer unthinkingly, but I think some of us would be helped by praying the Lord's Prayer more than we do. Because that prayer might sound foreign and unnecessary because of the way we live. We don't pray that God's name would be honored as holy because we honor ourselves in our arrogance. We look at our accomplishments. We bring all the honor and glory to ourselves. We don't pray for Christ's kingdom to come because we're happy with the kingdom that we're building for ourselves as we pursue a profitable career, a bigger house, a nicer car, a comfy retirement. We don't pray that Christ's kingdom come because ours is coming through our hard efforts. We don't pray that God's will would be done on earth. We're content for God's will to be done up in heaven. We want our wills to be done on earth. We'll care about his will when we get there, but until then, it's our agenda that prevails. The petition for God to give us our daily bread sounds absurd because our direct deposits that we earn through our labor at our job, through our productivity, ensures that we can drop by the grocery store whenever we want to get our daily bread. And that thing about forgiveness is too troublesome to think about. We won't forgive our debtors, because if we do, how will we gain a profit? We can't rely on God to provide us, so we mustn't forgive our debtors. And of course, we can avoid temptation all on our own, thank you very much. We don't need deliverance from the evil one. We can take care of that by ourselves. For ours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, as long as we can get our schedule planned just right. Do you see how our hearts grate against the kingship of Christ, the will of God, and his agendas? These are the attitudes that James wants us to drop because they're godless, without God, practically atheistic. So when you think about your life, when you plan your day, when you wake up every morning, do you commit it to God? Do you hold your plans loosely so that you can pursue Christ's leading by his spirit? Do you think about what your life actually is? Or do you make your plans as if you are God? Here he says, you're like a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes. Do you plan your life considering yourself as a vapor that vanishes? Or do you plan your life as if you'll be here and you can number your own days according to your plans? Winter's coming. Soon, 
We'll step outside and we'll breathe out and we'll see our breath for a second and then it will be gone. Every time we breathe outside this winter, we should think our life is a vapor. Because we get into this idea that with all of the technology, with our developed country, with all of our wisdom, we can escape the vapor-like nature of life and we can live however we please. But what is your life? It's a vapor. So what are you spending it on? How are you organizing it? What are you giving yourself to? This is a convicting text because everything about our world tells us that you are God. You control your life. Every part of your life is yours to control. And if anyone tries to infringe on it, if they try to impose their will on you, if they try to get you to serve them, get rid of them. Live according to your way of being. We adopt that way of life and we unknowingly, slowly but surely, relate to God in the same way. God, we don't care what you want from us. We want what we want and we'll do whatever it takes to get it. said so that James is not trying to keep us from planning but he is trying to transform the way that we plan so that all of our plans are held loosely, committed to God. If you can do this, not only will you experience the joy and the delight of living according to the will of God, but you'll also experience the freedom that comes from setting aside yourself as the God of the universe and the God of your life. Isn't it so strange that we get into this mode of thinking that we know what's best for us, so we have to take control of every part of our life, and instead of that bringing us great confidence, all it does is bring us great anxiety. We think if we can just place everything just so, because we know what's best for us, and we know more than what God knows, we know better than what he thinks, we can get things in order, our lives will be perfect. So we sin with fear and anxiety because it never turns out the way we want it to. We never give ourselves over to the God who has our best interests in mind. We never open our hands to receive the hardship that God brings our way through which he meets us in his comfort and grace. We fail to embrace the trials that James talks about in chapter 1 because we avoid them in every possible turn as we try to order our life just so. So plan your life, but plan your life with a consideration of God's will, asking him what he wants you to do, where he wants you to go. Recognize the finiteness of your life. Remember that you are not God. Don't make your plans all about building your own kingdom but make them about building God's kingdom wherever you go. We can be practical atheists as we replace God's word. We can be practical atheists as we ignore his will, but then we can also act as practical atheists as we commit sins of omission. So he says in verse 17, 
it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Isn't that all of us? We know the good through the word of God. We hear the word of God, but we don't do it. This summarizes the life of the practical atheist, and it's actually what distinguishes Christians from genuine atheists. People who don't know God, they live in sin, and that's bad enough. But practical atheists are those of us who do know God, but we live as if we don't know God. We live as if we don't know what God has revealed. We conduct our lives with a willful omission of God and the good that he prescribes for us. This is not a small thing. It's a functional denial of God. Practical atheists commit the sin of omission. We omit God from our life. We act as if he doesn't exist. And then we fail to do what we know we ought to do. Now, a wrong response to this verse would be to freak out and to pull out your Bible and try to make a list of every possible good thing that you could do and start working down that checklist because you don't want to admit doing anything good that you think you should be doing. But that's not what he's doing with this proverb. He's not trying to give us an infinitely long checklist Instead, he's giving us a compass, a direction to follow that makes our lives all about God rather than about ourselves and our desires. So he's not trying to get you to rack your brain and think about any possible good thing that you could do. Instead, he's giving you a compass that's pointed directly towards God so that in your life, day by day, step by step, you move toward him. And as you move toward him, you move toward the ultimate good, and you start to do the good that God requires of all those who love and follow him. It's an orientation. It's not a list. It's not burdensome. It's moving towards freedom. It's a reminder that knowledge alone is not enough but it must take shape in obedient action. Hasn't this been James's message throughout the book? You say that you know the good, but you don't do it. Don't be a hearer, be a doer. Don't just say that you have faith, show it with your action. Don't just say that you're wise, demonstrate it with Christ-like gentleness. Don't just say that you know and love and worship God. Move toward him in obedient action. Orient yourself toward God, demonstrating in your life that you have given your heart over to him. Ultimately, it's about your heart because it's only through the transformation of your heart that you can do the good that we so often omit. So how can this happen? You might be feeling somewhat helpless. Okay, um, so you're telling me don't forget God, you're telling me don't be a practical atheist. You're telling me don't replace his word. You're telling me don't ignore his will. But every day I wake up and I hit the alarm clock and I grab my cup of coffee and I forget God every single day. So what do I do? I want to suggest that there are some works that God does from the outside in that are ultimately a means by him changing us from the inside out. First, I want to urge you 
to commit every day to God in prayer is the first thoughts that you think. Get into the habit of committing your day in your life to God. Make your plans. Use your time block planner and plan out every half hour of your day if you're one of those people. But commit your day to God. Think that thought, God, I'm planning to do this today, but ultimately I want to know and love and obey you. So pray and commit your way to God. Two, read and study God's word. Read and study God's word. How will you know God's will for you if you never read God's word? Take the time to incorporate God's word into your life. Whether that's listening to the Bible on audiobook on your way to work. Talk to Rachel Hennigan. She let me know about a really cool Bible app that I've been listening to. It's really helpful. Carve time out in your morning to actually read the text of Scripture. Come to know God through his word. Come to understand his will by engaging in his word. So pray and read the Bible. Isn't this so simple, but also so hard to remember? It's hard to do. But God uses these things in our lives to transform our thinking and our affections to orient ourselves towards him. But I want to say, ultimately, those things will be no good unless you have come to Christ in faith and repentance. Unless you've received the spirit of God that transforms our hearts and draws us in obedience and in affections to him through prayer in the scriptures. You see, we're all, if we're Christians, maybe practical atheists, but before that, we're atheists. We live our life without God. There's no hope for us apart from Jesus Christ. There's no hope for change. There's no hope for God to come into our lives by us pursuing him. But he answered that need for us in Jesus Christ. Instead of us chasing after God, which we weren't doing anyway, God chased after us in Jesus. The Jesus who died for our sins and rose again so that we can have life and have it abundantly. Who gives us his spirit so that we're stuck not in our atheism, but that we're free in our theism, in our worship of God. So I want to say to you, if you don't know Jesus, the only way for God to come into your life is for you to know Christ and know God through Jesus. To set aside your own authority over your life and to receive King Jesus, who has authority over all things. To set aside your own aims and agendas and desires, to repent of that and to turn towards God in faith and obedience. But for us who are Christians, I want to say to you that you might not be giving God enough credit. You might be saying, I don't want to be a practical atheist. And I've tried, a time or two at least. But perhaps you're still so focused on yourself that you can't see that ultimately it's God who will bring about that transformation. So you must run to him and plead with God to transform your heart by his spirit, to make you dependent on him, to free you from your love of the world, to free you from yourself. That's the work that God promises to do in his spirit. So if you've come to him in faith, 
you can trust that he's bigger than you are and that he will do it. So let me pray that God would transform us, that he would take us who were once atheists and now sometimes walk as practical atheists to walk fully and freely, leaning on God's word and his will every day of our lives. Father, we come to this text with some measure of hesitation because it speaks to you, every one of us. Every one of us tries to replace your word with our own word. Every one of us, at one time or another, cares more about our own wills than we care about your will. We repent of this, and we pray that you would transform us by your spirit, that you would draw us in obedience to yourself as we commit ourselves to you, and we commit your will to ourselves through your word. Would you change us by your spirit? Would you infiltrate every aspect of our life and thought and action? It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.